is Gene Delcourt and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORD studios in beautiful downtown Madison. The two candidates for the open seat on Wisconsin Supreme Court have come to an agreement for a debate prior to next month's election. Uh, the two campaigns settled on a March 21st debate date to be hosted in part by the State Bar of Wisconsin. In addition to that debate, the Proskowitz campaign says it's agreed to a candidate forum one week later on March 28th. That will be sponsored by All Voting is Local, Campus Vote Project, and Vote Riders. Former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman is facing a third ethics complaint against him for his actions during his review of the 2020 presidential election results in Wisconsin. The complaint, filed by the progressive law firm Law Forward, accuses Gableman of violating many of the state's rules for attorney conduct during the months he was working on investigating election fraud for the state, according to the Wisconsin Examiner. In particular, the complaint accuses Gableman of mismanaging public funds as he paid for con- consulting services and travel for lawyers that had no ex- expertise in Wisconsin election law. The complaint also accuses Gableman of malicious attacks on public figures, including the mayors of Green Bay and Madison and an administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. The complaint goes to the state's Office of Lawyer Regulation, which will ultimately decide if the complaints will, cons- will proceed. A former attorney for the Trump campaign in Wisconsin has been reappointed to the state's Judicial Advisory Panel, despite his involvement in a lawsuit that tried to overthrow the election results. The Judicial Advisory Panel advises lawyers on ethical rules. Uh, The lawyer, Dane County's own Jim Trupis, has been a longtime player in conservative politics in Wisconsin. Most recently, Trupis worked on the Trump campaign and advised the GOP on fake electors. All three of the Supreme Court's liberal justices objected to Trupis' appointment, but they were overruled by the court's conservative majority. Trupis will now remain on the Ethics Committee until March 2026. The Wisconsin Department of Military Affairs will use a nearly $800,000 federal grant to conduct outreach and study noise mitigation options as F-35 jets come to Truex Field. The placement of F-35s have placed public resistance in Madison ever since their deployment was announced with Complaints focusing on their noise pollution and dubious strategic value. The new grant will study noise mitigation options in the area and develop a plan for mitigation, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Air National Guard officials say that they will also hold town hall meetings to hear from the community. Truexfield is undergoing a $120 million construction project to accommodate the new jets, which are expected to arrive later this spring. The Madison Metropolitan School District has announced plans for asynchronous learning time on Mondays during the spring. That's to make up for lost time due to snow days. All MMSD students will partake in 60 minutes of asynchronous learning on Mondays starting in April. Additionally, April 10th, which was previously a day off, will now be a full day of asynchronous learning, reports the Capital Times. Asynchronous learning was prominently used in the years of the pandemic and entails schoolwork done with a teacher present. The move comes after the area experienced an unusually snowy winter and marks the second year where MMSD has had to modify the spring schedule to make sure it met state mandates on hours of direct instruction. The City of Madison has announced that it will begin its spring cleanup of the streets. That means deploying street sweepers for the next six weeks to sweep away the accumulated winter debris such as sand, road salt, and other grit. City drivers are invited to remember to honor street sweeping days so that the sweepers can do their work and to be mindful of safety and politeness while navigating around the slower sweepers. In 2021, videos showing how to exploit a defect in Kia and Hyundai model cars took off, leading to a nationwide spike in car thefts. 
Madison was not spared of the so-called Kia boys, and now the city's looking to enter into a nationwide lawsuit against the car manufacturers. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. Madison City Council is poised to decide whether to join a class action lawsuit against car manufacturers Kia and Hyundai. That's after video showing how to exploit a defect in the cars to make them easy to steal went viral on social media, leading to a 270% increase in stolen Kias and Hyundais from 2021 to 2022 in Madison. The resolution, which is sponsored by Mayor Santia Rhodes-Conway and District 3 Alder Eric Paulson, would see the city hire outside counsel to represent Madison in a lawsuit against the manufacturers. That case, which was filed last year, is being heard by a federal judge in California. The legal firms Keller Rohrbach LLP out of Seattle and MWH Law Group out of Chicago would not be paid directly by the city and instead be paid through any awarded money from the lawsuit itself. Mike Haas is the Madison City attorney. He says that it's not just car owners who are taking on the costs from the car thefts. Video is showing how these vehicles can be stolen and that's resulted in not only thefts but a lot of incidents of stolen vehicles being used for other offenses, such as reckless driving and creating accidents or collisions. And that's caused financial damages, not only for the owners of those vehicles, but for the city and because of its police department and first responders responding to those incidents. Haas says that in addition to the time spent addressing the rising calls, the city has also spent both time and resources reaching out to the community to warn them about the defects and encourage preventative measures to the car thefts, like providing free wheel locks. He says that these uses of resources are directly linked to the Kia and Hyundai defects, and so the manufacturers should be held responsible. Some of that you would typically think is just normal city business that the police department would do, but... The key point here is that that is time that would be preventable um, and resources that would not have to have been expended except for the actions of these manufacturers. Last month, Hyundai announced that they would provide a free anti-theft upgrade for certain vehicles. While the current wave of updates are only available for certain vehicles, the car manufacturer says that the upgrades will be made available for all affected cars by June. Still, Haas says that this is not enough. And there are certainly financial damages that the city has incurred, but also, maybe more importantly, trying to make sure that the manufacturers fix this problem going forward for their existing vehicles and future vehicles. The free upgrades offered by Hyundai are not considered recalls, and Hyundai owners should call a local Hyundai dealer for more information. Haas says that this is not the first time in recent memory that the city has joined a class action lawsuit. This is an example of affirmative litigation that the city does not often engage in, but we are uh, looking for opportunities to recover for the city and its residents when there are circumstances that have been caused by you know, either manufacturers or other parties that could be avoidable. I mean, this is, I think, similar to the opioid litigation that the state has been involved in and other municipalities, and we have just been on the lookout for those cases where it might make sense for the city of Madison to become involved. The resolution will be introduced at the Common Council meeting tomorrow, and Haas says that he is pushing for the regular council rules to be amended for the measure to be voted on in the same meeting.
That meeting begins at 6.30 tomorrow evening and will take place both virtually over Zoom and in person in room 201 of the City County Building. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wookie Hout. To help low-income families during the pandemic, the federal government has been providing aid under the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. But aid levels are returning to normal, and Wisconsin families are urged to prepare. A national survey indicates the timing isn't great for struggling households. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin residents receiving federal food assistance have now seen their final round of emergency aid prompted by the pandemic. Hunger-fighting groups have tips on how to ease the transition. Additional SNAP benefits offered a bridge to low-income families as they navigated the economic impact of the crisis. Wisconsin was one of 32 states still tapping into extra aid, but the federal government has now ended the temporary support. Matt King of Wisconsin's Hunger Task Force Group says going back to pre-pandemic levels will result in dramatic swings in monthly support. He provides this example for older populations. Seniors will see a drop from $281 down to $23. So that's a really significant decrease in money that they have available to buy groceries. Wisconsin administers SNAP aid through its food share program. King encourages recipients to review their eligibility factors to make sure they're receiving the maximum level of aid. And he says you have up to a year to spend the benefits you receive. That means that stretching those dollars, especially any leftover funds from the pandemic boost, can help in the months ahead. Meanwhile, returning to normal benefit levels comes as households continue to grapple with higher grocery costs. Eileen Ariasa of the National Advocacy Group Parents Together says its recent survey shows many families are juggling a lot of expenses. 64% of families are saying that they are having trouble making ends meet right now. And the biggest challenges are paying for things like diapers, formula, paying for utilities, paying for housing. Noriaza says families in need should be more outspoken about what's happening. These types of benefits that help families, that help kids thrive, that put food on the table for hungry kids. This is something that families deserve. The group says it's especially worried with congressional Republicans floating new work requirements or general cuts to SNAP aid as part of negotiations about the debt limit. GOP lawmakers say it's about incentivizing able-bodied people to return to work, but Democrats are expected to fight these proposals, suggesting they'd only make it harder for some people to get back on their feet. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Gene Delcourt. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Kunkel sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings to come in Madison and Dane County. This week, the county moves to consolidate some of their many committees, and the city council gets in some last-minute business before the April election. It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Kunkel from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in city government. Brenda, let's get right into it. Dane County happening today was at 530 in progress, the City County Homeless Issues Committee. So this is Dane County and the city. What are they talking about? 
So they got two main things on their agenda. First one is for the men's shelter. Um, they're looking at a trauma-informed design assessment. Um, there's a pretty extensive report on there. And uh, they'll be getting on some updates about the development of that as well. Um, and then the other thing they have on there, I'm real interested to see how it plays out. Jeanette uh, Figueroa-Cole has introduced an ordinance to combine the city-county homeless issues, the landlord and tenant issues committee, and the housing strategy committee. You know, there's lots of questions there about how that's going to work because the city-county homeless issue includes county folks. and Are they going to be on our tenant-landlord issues committee and, and things like that? So a, a few details, I think, left to be worked out there. They, they may be voting on that on Tuesday night at the council as well. Hey, another one. PP&J, Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. Have you ever seen that movie Patty Cakes? Oh, this is such a deep cut here. But have you ever seen the movie <laughs> Patty Cakes? No, I have not. Well, they, have a, they have a song <laughs> called PB&J. Ah. So all that's getting cut. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> PP&J, they have uh, a meeting, a hybrid meeting at 530 on Tuesday, and they're amending um, the capital budget to provide funding for the jail consolidation project. What's that about? Are we finally getting that settled after a couple of years of debate? A couple of years, a couple decades um, of debate? Who knows? <laughs> I can't predict. Um, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, this committee could support something. They might not support something. And the, the county board could do the complete opposite. So we'll just we'll just see once uh, how this goes. They do have a few other things that they have on their agenda as well, but that is the first item. So if you're there for the other items, you may be waiting for a minute. They have some audio equipment that they're going to be installing in the public safety building, contracting with the sheriff's department in the town of Oregon to provide policing services there, and a couple grants. All right. Well, let's talk now about something happening on Wednesday. It's the airport commission. Um, That's pretty important with the arrival of F-35s. Are they talking about that at all? Um, they are talking about uh, the Greater Madison Convention and Visitors Bureau and their contract there to provide visitor information. And then they're talking about an easement. There are, however, some other committees this week talking about PFAS. Okay. Maybe you should just quickly go through there that. Yeah. Okay. So at 530, well, I guess the airport commission is also at, uh, included in it, but it's a joint meeting with the Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee, and they will be talking about PFAS and looks like it might be bioremediation and it says Orin Technologies. So they must have a uh, somebody who's been contracted to work on that. And that is a joint meeting with, uh, like I said, Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee. Ener, the way they call it at the county. Oh, let's never call it that. All right. And that's on 530 <laughs> on Thursday. Correct. We have to move on to the city of Madison. And the finance committee is meeting. It's, already, it's meeting right now uh, that 430. Do they have any important projects in the works? Looks like TIFF, 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 and TIFF. Ooh, um, tiff day. Yeah. So they got a bunch of amendments to some of the current plans um, at Capitol Gateway, Union Corners, and Wingra TIFF. And then they are creating a new TIF in South Madison. So lots of TIF things on their agenda. Um, they have a few other items on there, and then they'll be looking at establishing a grant program to support accessible taxis in the city of Madison. And one thing I love about WRT uh, is that news director Sholly Pittman always makes new reporters do a report, you know, if it's relevant, on TIF and TIDs. There you go. Because every new reporter should start with tids. <laughs> and there's plenty of material for them to cover. There is. All right. 6.30 on Tuesday, we have a virtual meeting of the Common Council. It's, I think it's hybrid, actually, but 
The public can definitely uh, give testimony virtually, though. Is this going to be another long one? Well, they just met last week, um, so the agenda was a little bit shorter, but um, this is the second to last meeting of this particular council. So there's a lot of folks who are trying to get in all the other last minute things. Um, the big item that's probably going to take up some time is there is a, a program that the Chamber of Commerce and others are upset about uh, that would give them some energy savings, but have some reporting requirements with it. And, and they're not, they're not happy about that, I hear. In addition to that, there's a whole bunch of liquor licenses. All of those TIFs are on there. Alder Grant Foster is um, going to be repealing a bunch of various ordinances. There's some, a little bit of cleanup on some council procedures. And uh, the city of Madison is looking at joining a lawsuit against Kia and uh, for those locks that that you can just uh, you know break into yeah. with a screwdriver and an iPhone yeah yeah, yeah. so Kia and Hyundai they're looking at joining a, a lawsuit against huh. them. okay I'd sue uh, Apple we'll why see. not <laughs> we really appreciate you taking the time each week to to walk us through what's happening in Dane County and the city of Madison so thank you Brenda and we'll be talking soon all right sounds good Tomorrow is the anniversary of the Ford Hunger March Massacre of 1932. Enduring bitter cold and frigid winds, over 3,000 unemployed starving workers marched on the giant Ford River Rouge complex. They were met with police violence, five were killed, and over 60 wounded. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Tomorrow, March 7th, is the anniversary of the Ford Hunger March of 1932. 3,000 unemployed workers marched with 14 demands, including jobs for laid-off employees the right to organize unions, medical aid, an end to racial discrimination in hiring and promotions, and increased wages. The peaceful demonstration was met by police violence. Five workers were shot and killed and 60 wounded. The workers' reaction to the massacre helped advance the CIO and the United Auto Workers organizing drives a few years later. The march started in Detroit and was to end at the River Roche plant, then the largest factory complex in the world, in Dearborn, Michigan. But at the Detroit border, the marchers were blocked by Dearborn and Detroit police, the Michigan State Police, the Dearborn Fire Department, and Ford's own private security force. The Dearborn police fired tear gas into the crowd. Some marchers responded by throwing stones. The police temporarily retreated and the marchers continued toward the fort complex. At the gate, the workers were again blocked. The fire department attacked the protesters with cold water from their fire hoses. The police and fort security began to shoot at the crowd, killing three, Joe York, Coleman Lenny and Joe de Blasio, and wounding 22 people. The march leaders, including the head of the Detroit Unemployment Council, Albert Goetz, and the Communist Party, CP, mayoral candidate, John Shimmies, called off the march and began an orderly retreat. But then Henry Bennett, head of Ford Security, drove up in a car, opened a window, and fired a pistol into the crowd. Immediately, the car was pelted with rocks, and Bennett was injured. He got out of the car and began firing at the retreating marchers. Dearborn police and Ford Security men opened fire with machine guns. Joe Bussell, 16 years old, was killed. 
and dozens more were wounded, over 60 in both attacks by police and security men. About 25 Dearborn police were injured by thrown rocks. All of the seriously wounded were arrested, with the police chaining many to their hospital beds. No law enforcement or Ford security officers were arrested, although all reliable reports showed that they had done all the gunfire, resulting in deaths, injuries, and property damage. The New York Times reported that Dearborn streets were stained with blood, streets were littered with broken glass, and the wreckage of bullet-riddled automobiles in nearly every window in the Ford plant's employment building had been broken. The following day, the Detroit papers reported sensational and misleading accounts of the violence, apparently based on rumors or false police reports. The Detroit Times, for example, claimed Harry Bennett, head of Ford security and four policemen, had been shot. The Detroit Press said that six shots fired by communists hiding behind a parked car were sighted by police Monday night as the match which touched off a riot at the Ford Motor Company plant. The Detroit Free Press said these professional communists alone are morally guilty of the assaults and killings which took place before the Ford plant. The Mirror ran a headline saying red leaders facing murder trials. In the following days, the local papers gathered more information and changed their tone, reassigning the blame. The Detroit Times, for example, said someone, it is now admitted, blundered in the handling of the throng of hunger marches that sought to present petitions at the Ford plant at River Roche. The newspaper continued that the killing of obscure workmen, innocent of crime, was a blow directed at the very heart of American institutions. The Detroit News reported that insofar as the demonstration itself had leaders present in the march, they appear to have warned the participants against the fight. The mainstream trade union movement spoke out against the killings. The Detroit Federation of Labor issued a statement declaring the outrageous murdering of workers at the Ford plant in Dearborn on Monday has cast a stain in, on this community that will remain a disgrace for many years. On March 12th, perhaps 60,000 people participated in a funeral procession for the four dead workers who were buried side by side in Woodmere Cemetery in Detroit. The slogan of the funeral march was, Smash the Ford Murphy Terror. A fifth marcher, Curtis Williams, died of his injuries three months later. But tragically, Williams, who was African American, was not allowed to be buried by his comrades in the whites only cemetery. So Curtis Williams' family had his remains cremated and scattered his ashes near the grave of his fellow workers. The murder of these men spurred the organizing drives of the CIO and the United Auto Workers, UAW. Nine years later, on April 11, 1941. After the economy was improving and 40,000 Ford workers conducted a 10-day sit-down strike, Henry Ford signed a collective bargaining agreement with the United Auto Workers Union. And that is our story for today. For the past is past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's Monday, which means feature contributor Harry Richardson is here with two new movie reviews. First is a documentary about the battle for control of the 1970s co-op movement in Minneapolis called The Co-op Wars. Then a new movie about the life of director Steven Spielberg, which has received seven Academy Award nominations, The Fablemans. In the 1970s, a group of young radicals started a food revolution. In the space of just a few years, they opened more than two dozen cooperative grocery stores in the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. 
And that was a clip from the trailer for The Co-op Wars, directed by independent filmmaker Deacon Warner. This is a well-done documentary that is showing as part of the Minnesota Experience series on Twin Cities PBS. It's available through the Wisconsin Public TV site. Co-op Wars came out late last year. While today's food co-ops seem very mainstream, they were once, and could still be, a radical departure from for-profit businesses. Back in the 60s, many people saw the co-ops as a way to create a new, non-capitalist economy. The one-hour documentary tries to tell a balanced story of the sometimes violent attempt to take over the local food cooperative movement in the Minneapolis-St. Paul region in 1976. Many people were radicalized by the war and the civil rights movement. Co-op Wars talks to some of the main characters on the scene then. Many of them still active today. Local hippies started out with small plots of land, growing and eventually selling organic produce to people in the cities. One of the key organizers was Susie Schroyer. She became interested in the health and political benefits of organic food while at the Georgeville Commune. From there, she became the key founder of the People's Pantry, which became the North Country Co-op, the city's first natural food store. Dean Zimmerman had fought for voting rights as part of the Mississippi Freedom Summer in 1964. Dean threw himself into the food co-op movement, helping to start North Country Co-op and assisting with the starting of co-ops across the Midwest. The success of the North Farm inspired an explosion of food and other co-ops in the area, forming a cooperative economy unparalleled in the rest of the country. During the summer of 73, many co-op activists came and went at Winding Road Farm. They sold their produce to the local co-ops. One of those people was a mysterious figure with many aliases. Smitty. He was a well-muscled, charismatic African-American man in his mid-twenties. He claimed he had been involved in the Detroit League of Revolutionary Black Workers and the Black Workers Congress. The league was a coalition of radical grassroots black workers at the area's auto plants. Smitty was a Marxist-Leninist who formed a secretive group that attempted to take over and radicalize the local co-op movement. Soon, there were two factions, the revolutionaries versus the hippies. Co-op Wars tells this important, sad story with lessons for today about race, class, sexism, and inclusion. It's well worth checking out. Now for a melancholy film with a much different look at the early 60s. Once there was a way Most of my movies have been a reflection of things that happened to me. Back but in the sense of the Fablemans, it wasn't about metaphor, it was about memory. Once there was a way and that was a clip from the trailer for The Fablemans, directed and co-written by Steven Spielberg. The film came out in January and recently started streaming on Vudu and other services. It has been nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Director for Spielberg and Best Original Screenplay for Spielberg and his co-writer Tony Kushner. There are also well-deserved nominations for Best Actress for Michelle Williams, Best Supporting Actor Judd Hirsch, and Best Original Score for John Williams, which is a long way of saying this movie has gotten a lot of well-deserved attention. This is reportedly Spielberg's most autobiographical movie, The Fable then are a lot like Spielberg's family, especially Sammy Fableman, played as an older teen by Gabriel LaBelle. Sammy grew up in the 50s and 60s in New Jersey, Arizona, and California. Our opening scene from 1954 sets the stage with a young Sammy going to and being fascinated and traumatized by his first movie, Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth. His parents illuminously filmed Williams as his mom, Mitzi, and his stodgy but loving nerd dad, Bert Paul Dano, an electrical engineer, are shocked by the movie's violence. 
Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. Sammy is especially taken by the crashing train scene. Tragically, we've seen too many real-life scenes like this lately. Mitzi gets it immediately when Sammy uses the train set he asked for for Hanukkah and immediately crashes it. He wants to control it, she says, and loans him the family Super 8, so it only has to crash it once and can watch it over and over. The relationship between Sammy and his mom is the film's center. She is supportive, cheerful on the outside, but going crazy on the inside. She gave up a concert career to raise her kids, like many well-off moms of this era. We see Sammy growing up and making movies in response to or as an escape from sad events of his life, like his parents' divorce and anti-Semitism at his high school. There are some light-hearted yet melancholy moments, like a family camping trip he films and shows the family. There's a great closing scene where Sammy meets John Ford, the greatest director ever. It will be fun to know how much of this really happened to Spielberg, but the main thing is that he shared this warm-hearted, wonderful story with us. For WT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer was Nate Carlin. Your reporter this evening was Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and Harry Richardson, plus Nicholas Leet for technical production. Thank you to our special fundraisers, Zoe Sullivan and Helena White. Our most venerated engineer, Victor Calzoni, got the news on the air. Nate Wayhout produced produce this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. Up next is the most freeform show on the radio dial, the Access Hour, coming up after these announcements. Good night. Mm-hmm.